But we need to first, uh, we're going to be ultimately landing in the New Testament. We're going to be landing there. And uh, before we get started, let me just open us up in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the reality that we have in you. Um, Lord, this whole series is just proclaiming the phenomenal reality that we are created in your image, and that says something, that means something, and it does something inside each one of us. Lord, I pray that you help this um, not merely be um, a Bible study that is only for the purpose of learning more about your word, but that it's an open reality to the truth, God, that you want to transform each and every one of us. And I pray that that happens. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, if you are, now you've turned to Matthew, we're going to get there in just a second, but before we, before we really settle in on that, I need to have a brief history of what we're talking about tonight, which is really a brief history of violence. Um, violence is something that we see um, take place all throughout history. In fact, if you want to go back to the first recorded violent act, we see that in Scripture. And this, this actually is an 1888 painting by William uh, Boguero. And uh, this painting is called The First Morning. And The First Morning, as in, as in bringing sadness, is depicting the truth of what took place between Cain and Abel. When, when Cain uh, killed Abel, and this is not showing Cain in the picture at all. This is just showing the ramification and the aftermath of that moment. And, and, and William uh, showcases that here in this picture. But we see it throughout art, all throughout, um, throughout history. If you do any art history, you recognize that this reality of violence is a common thread. And when, when you get into the history of the, just the outside of art history, you see that this crosses every continent, every divide, and even all, it's not something that's just in the Old Testament or the old time. This is something that takes place even up till now. Some of the darkest moments in our history have showcased what human beings do to one another and when they break apart one another, and even when they step in, and that doesn't simply take place on the battlefield, it doesn't simply take place in the streets, but it takes place in homes where we have one in four women experiencing domestic violence. This is something that is current, it is us, and it is real, and it needs a solution. Now, um, one of the things that we, uh, as human beings, we've looked for a solution, and it was John Lennon that talks about this um, in the song Imagine. He imagines a world where that's not the dynamic. That's not the, the, the deal that human beings have to struggle with or realize um, that violence and, and, and warfare and, and, and the way that human beings have acted from the beginning of time till now doesn't have to be the reality. And so he imagined that world in that song, Imagine. And part of that he identifies as, you know what? Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Like if, if, you, if you think about it, you can go there. And, and that actually he puts his finger on something that people have agreed with. One of the main problems with this world is religion. And, and, and if you look throughout the, war, the history of warfare and violence, you see human beings who have affixed themselves to some religious ideology going to war against those who are on the opposite end. Lenin sang about that, but it was uh, Hitchens, uh, the late um, new atheist, um, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who really put it poignantly when he said, religion, specifically Christianity, poisons everything. If you want to look at racism, if it's not connected to religion, religion will spur it on. If you want to look at warfare, if it's not connected to a religion, religion is what spurs it on. And if you look, again, throughout history, you're going to find 
bountiful evidence of all of that taking place. But there's a problem. The 20th century happens. And in the 20th century, this is one of the most enlightened, one of the most enlightened centuries to date. The, to date. We have the most bloodshed taking place on a global scale and that bloodshed not being at the top of the list fought by, impacted, or, or victimized by religion. In fact, the most bloodshed taking place in the 20th century, the bloodiest century to date, was by countries that disconnected themselves from religion, whether it was um, communist China, um, Cambodia, uh, the Soviet Union, even Nazi Germany, who uh, adopted Christianity to use it as a vehicle to propagate its stuff. But within the upper ranks, it was very clear what they were communicating is, we are not Christians. We are kicking that to the curb. We're using Christians' ideology to get our point across. And so we see that it's not a religion problem. It's not a religious problem at all. It's a people problem. Whether you're religious or not, throughout history, people have gotten to a place where they come up against this, each other and they, they have friction and they, they have conflict and ultimately, ultimately they, they have violence against one another and murder each other. Again, that's, that's part of the reason um, why Stephen Hawking believes that the most ideal thing we could do, or the best thing we could do, in fact, he just said that we should do this within the next 20 years, is to find a way to get to another planet and populate it. The doomsday clock, Earth's impact on Earth, humanity's impact on Earth is, is up to the clock to 20 years from now. And the, most, the biggest problem is humans against human violence. And so we need to populate other planets to avoid this. this now, Hawking is true with that. Hawking is right on the money that this is a human problem. It's not a religious problem. But the good thing and the good news is the humans have a solution. And you've, you've heard this. Our current solution is tolerance. And tolerance is something that, that is, I mean, really, if you like have an issue with tolerance, I, I've got an issue with you. Tolerance is a good thing. In fact, um, I think some Christians have pushed back on it because it sounds like, well, you're just saying that everything's okay and I'm not, I'm not supposed to be tolerant. And to which I would say, no, you're, you're not tolerant at all. I know you, you're not tolerant. But you need to realize that tolerance in and of itself is not bad, it's just empty. It's not a bad value. But in isolation, this value gets mucked up fast. It, 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 it's something that independently exercised leads to violence, apathy, and despair. Because this is what tolerance says. Tolerance says is, you are different from me, but I'm a really good person. So I'm going to tolerate you. I'm going to tolerate you to a point. And here's what the point is. Either I'm ultimately going to say that the things that we both believe in or value on a human scale, whether it's women's rights or some religious perspective, don't really matter. And I'm going to become more apathetic. Or I'm going to get to the point of saying, I'm going to tolerate you until you get me to one point and then the gloves come off. Ultimately, I'm going to get to a place of violence with you. And this is why even when you have a peaceful protest, peaceful protests rarely end peaceably because human beings have a problem with tolerance if it's in isolation. Because the question comes, why should I tolerate this person? If we are just biology, then honestly, my ultimate goal is to get my point across at any means necessary no matter who it hurts, I will walk across any person's body to get to my higher goal because it matters that much. Tolerance, fantastic value, but in isolation, all by itself, 
It's empty and it's sad. But there's a biblical reality that speaks to the, to the counterpoint of that. And that is that we're created in the image of God. You may have heard about this already in our series, but we are created in the image of God. And we see that that has two amazing implications. If you look at Genesis chapter one, you don't have to turn there, but I will. It's on the first page, so it's super easy to find. Genesis chapter one says this in verse 26 and 27, what we've been reading every week. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And again, he's talking in the plural there, talking about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's using a, a plural word, but it's, it's uh, uh, adopted as in a singular, singular. Let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. 27, so God created mankind in his own image. Jump over to chapter five. He says this, um, he, he jumps on and says this in verse one. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. He named them mankind when they were created. Okay, so the first thing that we realize is that the biblical reality is better than tolerance. Tolerance is great, but it's, we got to have more than tolerance if we're actually going to coexist. This elevates what we just read in, in chapter one. This elevates every person's individual value and worth and connects it unshakably to who God is. Meaning that if I've got an issue with you, I don't take you down. Not because you're wrong and not because you're a terrible person or not because, you're, what, because I'm right. The reason I don't resort to violence against you is because when I look at you, I'm not just seeing a bag of biology. I'm looking at the image of God walking, talking right in front of me. A soul that is animated. More than something that is set aside from all of the creation. But this, this is not, this is not a sermon on the value of life. That's coming in a couple weeks. The second reality is, is in chapter uh, 9, verse 6. This is after the flood. If you want to, just jump on over there. This is after the flood. And God is, you know, the wickedness of mankind has just, just drenched the earth to the point that the toxicity of people is just, it's, it's, out, it's everywhere. And so God hits the reset button with the flood. And he preserves one family to be the, the, the prototype of everything else. And it's interesting to see what God says to him afterwards in verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has ma God made mankind. Let me say that once again. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. So we see in this passage the logical consequences of robbing another person of their life. That human value is so huge. You're not created in the image of just whatever just happened. You're not created in the image of the accidental circumstances that ultimately led to you being you. You're created in the image of God. So there's massive value on every single person regardless. And when somebody robs someone of that life, the, the massive value, this is grand theft. And grand theft has higher consequences than petty theft. The grand theft on a cosmic scale is that you just robbed someone of the image of God. You robbed them of the life that God created in them. And the consequences of that is that that person loses their life. So the interesting thing here is this. This not only elevates that, but it also helps us understand the massive consequences. This was um, something that I believe also we see in Scripture where, where you see in the Old Testament an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This isn't saying, okay, if someone does something to you, you go back and get them. It's mitigating and minimizing the violence. 
Instead of somebody kills someone, you go out and you take out their family and their family's family for a generation. It's one for one. And the only reason this happens is that this person robbed this person over here of life. Now this is, this is you know, you get into capital punishment over here, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Yesterday trending on Facebook, there was um, a woman, uh, a young lady who was, was raped and murdered on a moving bus in India by four men. And these four men are going to hang. The, the Supreme Court of India just, just ruled it. And it was interesting to watch people's reaction. They were like, good, this is right. But they can't tell why. Why is this right? Why should there be blood for that? Why should these people lose their life for that? What value do we have if we're just biology? On, on, um, on talk and chat boards, there's, on humanist.com, there's a whole bunch of communication. Listen, we know that there's the capital punishment, there should be the death penalty for some circumstances. But it's very uncomfortable to say that because we have no standard to say that this person's life is, is worth taking this person's life. We know that it's true, we just don't know why. We do. We know that it's the biblical reality that we're creating the image of God and that value is so ginormously high that to rob it has enormous consequences. But this is not a sermon on the capital punishment. Okay, it's not a sermon on either one of those. See, if we just go from those two passages, we realize God has valued every one of your lives enormously. Like you have great value. And that's awesome. So whatever you do, just don't murder somebody. And the good news is, is that NBC is full of a lot of people and we have very few murderers. Most of them are on staff. And so it's like, it's something that we don't have to worry about until Jesus steps in the room. All of a sudden, we have a new sheriff in town who's communicating a clarified understanding of everything that was happening in the Old Testament. Jesus uses this word, hakusite hati Erethei, which sounds like it's from Harry Potter, but it's not. It's just Greek for saying, you've heard it said. And he uses this six times on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Six times he's like, okay, everyone here, all of us growing up in elementary school, we all heard it said, what? And then like he went through, bam, bam, bam. And then he says, but I say to you, Jesus, who is the literal image of God, steps onto scene to show us what it looks like. And he says, you've heard it said, but I'm going to tell you this. Now, you're, if you're in Matthew chapter 5, this isn't the passage we're going to study, but t- you can take a look at it. It's just up above it. Chapter 5, verse 21, he says this. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Okay, so we already got that. Everyone's like, yeah, we know. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister or hates them, in other translations, will be subject to judgment. Jump down to 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take off your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, which is what the Romans would do, they'd say, okay, you're a Jew, come here. Go carry my stuff for a mile. If anyone tells you, gives you, uh, anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And he continues on from there. This is like crazy stuff Jesus is saying here. I mean, it's, it's revolutionary. But what he's saying is in my kingdom, we actually are going to operate under a firmer ground. Not only do we value life because everyone is created in the image of God, 
But I'm, called, I'm calling you not simply just to co- coexist in this, in this world with these people. I'm calling you up a notch. In fact, that's, that's the first thing I want you to know, is that followers of Jesus are not called to tolerate. You are not called into tolerance. You can be, you can be taught tolerance. You could, you could try to flow with tolerance. But you, as a Christian, are not called to tolerate. You're called to do something far more difficult than tolerance. Tolerance is training wheels, okay? For the land, you know, for this, this is something that you, it's training wheels for the reality of what God wants to do inside of your life. Followers of Jesus are not called to tolerate. Followers of Jesus are called to love. And that is a lot harder than simply coexisting. Loving someone is a lot more difficult than simply be tolerating them. It's a step into a deeper reality. We're called to love. And for humanity, we're called to love a humanity that is not, and this love that we have for humanity is neither blind nor naive. Because let's just pause right there. As I'm even reading Jesus' stuff about turning the other cheek and all that stuff, let's be honest, a lot of us are like, yeah, but if he, if he threw the punch first, I mean, I'm, I'm going to end the fight. Let's be honest, right? So we have to understand that Jesus is calling us into some sketchy territory here. Now, I, I believe that Scripture isn't against self-defense. I, I think that if, if there's someone that is doing, wants to do harm to someone, if you know that a guy's walking with a knife and he's going to take out a kid and you just stand there, well, you're a monster. You take that guy down. But, but I would say that what you're doing, whatever you do to this guy is mitigating the damage that would be caused. You're not, that's radically different than if you saw a guy who cut some kid and you said, okay, that's it. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find a way to cut him and his family. It's that's what Jesus, Jesus is talking about. There's a different way of living where we are actually living in love. Love for humanity that's neither blind nor naive. Rather, it is the most honest and most, most self-aware. We understand how messed up. We're not like, I, I, hum, humans are great. They're wonderful. Everything they do is great, awesome. Because that's not true. That would be naive. That would be blind. What we're called to is not a blind or naive love, but one that is the most honest and the most self-aware. And it's a love that, first off, does this. It loves the other in spite of their wrongs. Okay? How many of you watched Lost back in the day? Way back in the day? Okay, some, of, some of the younger people are like, I don't know what that is. You're old. Yeah, it was just a couple years back. But one of the things that Lost did was it capitalized on this, and we've talked about this before, capitalized on the idea of the other. These people crash land in an airplane onto a beach, and all of a sudden they're like, well, we don't know, are we, are we, we're, we're on some abandoned beach, and, and we're survivors, and, and we're trying to figure out how to do this. And Jeff Probst from Survivors is not anywhere to be found, and we're looking around, and, and all of a sudden they realize they're not alone. And what do they call those people? The others. Until they find out who they are. They find out that they're not the others, they're the Dharma Initiative. There's some like weirdo, like, 60s hippie group that landed there and wanted to do experiments on nature and stuff. And you found out that once you get to know the Dharma Initiative, they too have others that they're afraid of. It's the hostels that lived on the island before them. The whole show is showcasing human condition with, I'm freaked out because of the other. The other. And what Jesus says, I've got a solution for how you treat them. First off, you love them in spite of their wrongs. You love the other in your world, the person that is most difficult for you to tolerate in your world. You love them in spite of what they have done that is wrong. If you take a look in your passage, if you've got your Bibles open, you can take a look at this or it's up here. Jesus says, again, that that phrase right there, he says, you've heard it said, 
And then he goes in and he starts talking about this. He says, love your neighbor. And that word for love is agape, which is, it's not just even like, a, like affection or like, I, it's, it's unconditional love. Meaning, I'm going to, like Marty, if Marty never did a thing for me, I'm going to love him anyway. If, 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 I, if I lent Marty 20 bucks and he never paid me back, I'm going to love him anyway. If, if Marty used that $20 to light my house on fire, I'm going to love him anyway. That's agape, okay? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This word persecute is the word that means makes you run away. Like the people that in your world, you see them coming and you scatter because you know it's, it's bad news. These people are going to damage you. Uh, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he gives a reason why. Because we already understand Jesus is standing on the foundation of you're loving these people because they're creating the image of God. But then he gives an additional reason that we do that. And that's this, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Now, if you're, if you're part of his tribe, if you're a Christian, Jesus is saying, you want to know how people are going to actually know that you're Christians? They're going to know that you're Christians by your love. That kind of love. Loving those kinds of people. The people that have wronged you. Wronged you in the past or they're still wronging you. Your interaction with these people is going to be remarkable. And it's going to change people's perspective that you may be the children of the, your father in heaven. And, and then we understand this. This is one of those things where why, does, why do good things happen to terrible people? And it seems like bad things happen only to good people. Well, Jesus tells us why right here. He causes, talking about God, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, so, so when we look at this, we have to understand that there is something here for us to learn and what we have to learn is that what we are called to do is love. Love them in spite of what they've done because of the fact that their sin has not taken away. The things that they've done wrong has not taken away the image of God in them no matter what they've done. And this may not be someone that you're inviting over for dinner because they're totally dangerous, right? But love is a decision that is made in your heart first even before you ever make any like strides towards this person. It's choosing not to be the judge and jury over that person's life. Their sin has not taken away the image of God in them. He is still providing for them. He's still sending the sun over them, sending the rain for their crops, paying their salaries, making sure that their neighborhoods are safe. For the unrighteous and the evil, he's doing that. And so if he's doing that, then that calls us into people who are following in his movement to love them in spite of their great wrongs. Does, does that mean that what they did was not wrong? No. Does that mean that what they did was, was is, you know what, it's okay, it's all okay. It's all just, it's in the past. Uh-uh. Some of the things that they've done wrong, they should go to jail for. But I am called to love them. I'm called to love them and not hate them. Take a look at the next couple of verses as we jump into the next couple of verses in 46. And actually, we're going to go all the way to 48. Jesus says, if you love, he, he kind of paints the picture of what we all typically do. If you love those who love you, okay, pause. So I want you to do a little mental game here. Just, everyone just close your eyes. Everyone just close your eyes. Close your eyes, close your eyes. This is where people are like, is he serious? Does he have a super soaker? Okay, close your eyes. Okay, good. Everyone's got their eyes closed. I want you to think about the people that are really easy for you to hang out with. 
The people that like, if you got together with this person, you don't even have to worry about what you're wearing. You're not worrying about how you're talking. You're not walking on eggshells. This person is safe. Okay, that, that's, that's the word that Jesus uses for neighbor. It's another word that can also be used is for friend. Okay, friend. And th- these are the people that you want to do good for. I mean, if you got 20 bucks, you're not giving it to Marty. You're giving it to this guy or this lady. They're the people that, that, that are the easiest for you to love. All right, eyes open. If you love those people, if you love those people who love you that are easy to love, what reward will you get? In other words, that's nice that you have friends. But that's not rewardable lifestyle. You just being nice to nice people? <laughs> that's easy. And Jesus says it's easy. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? So the people that are the most screwed up people in our world, the, the liars and the cheaters, they do that too. So what, what makes you so moral in doing that? And if you greet only your own people, and he uses the word adolphos, which is another word for, this is a person within mankind. This is my tribe. If you're, if you're only like kind and greeting people, inviting people to, the, to your type of people, the people who look like you and listen to music like you and vote like you and go to the same church as you, if that's all you're doing, are you doing more than others, Jesus says. Do not even the pagans do that. And then he gets to this really, really awkward verse I've never liked because I didn't get it. He says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, which I want to say, that's wonderful, Jesus, but that is impossible. Be perfect as, I always had that one verse out of context, out of place, but if we look at it in context with everything else, listen, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. He is using a word called teleos, and teleos means complete. Be complete. Have the mental completeness of the Father. With with regard to how you look at people, how you treat people, have the mindset, the complete mindset that God has. His love for them is the type of love that we should have. If we're doing anything lower than that, we're not being human. We're being subhuman. The most human you could be is looking like that and acting like that and operating like that. We love others not only in spite of their great wrongs, but in spite of their great differences We love others in spite of their great difference. The people who are most unlike you, who are most difficult to love, those are the people you're called to. The people that you want to walk the other way from or you don't want to get in a conversation with them, those are the people that you're called to love, according to Jesus. So how do we do that? Okay, first off, this is how we do it. We see them through the filter of God's eyes. We see this person, okay? So we already, we thought about the people that are really wonderful and nice. So now everyone close your eyes real quick. This time I will have a super, no, just kidding. All right, everyone have your eyes closed. Okay, now think about the people who are the opposite of those friends that you just talked about. The people who annoy you on Facebook. The people who drive you bananas at work. The people in your family that are like fingernails on the chalkboard every time you're together. The people that when you hear about them in the news, you want to cuss because you're just so ticked off about them. Those people, okay, open your eyes. See that person through the filter of God's eyes. And this is what I mean by that. I think it's best to think of this like, um, you know, sometimes if, if you're friends with somebody and they've got a, a child that is just like, let's say they're 30 years old, their kid's 30 and, and just doing terrible stuff. 
okay? You've watched this person grow up, and, but you see, you're talking to the mom or the dad, and they're like, ah, oh, I mean, it's like it's breaking their heart how messed up their kid is. But you, you've got this weird connection with that kid. You could love that kid, partially because he's not your kid. And you're like, but you actually have the ability to say, this is the screwed up kid of my friend. I'm gonna love that kid. You know what? No one else understands that kid like me. His parents, they're not getting through to him. He's not listening to them. But I'm going to love this kid. I'm gonna love this screwed up kid of my friend. Think about the person that you just thought of as the screwed up kid of God. He loves this person. He died for this person. And they're running away with all of their might. So instead of just looking at them as that evil person or that messed up person or that annoying person, look at them through God's eyes. God loves them. And he's called you into proximity with them. See them through the filter of God's eyes. Secondly, find the common something, okay? If this person at work is annoying you, there is, regardless of who they are, let's just say the worst possible person on planet earth, this person, you still have something in common, you could actually bridge the gap between you and them. Even if you would never ever want to trust this person to babysit your kids, even if you ne would never ever want to share a meal with this person, there's something that you have in common with them simply because of the fact that they are created in the image of God. And you have the opportunity to find it. Underneath all, that, all the differences, there lies the image of God. I have, I have found this when I'm on a plane and I've had a chance to talk um, with a Jewish atheist or a Muslim. I've had this when I've uh, been at a cafe and someone walks up with uh, her arm just full of tattoos and it gives me an opportunity to, to ask, okay, so what does the rose mean? And all of a sudden a new conversation opens up. When, when you have the opportunity, to, when this person who's just so cantankerous at work, but then all of a sudden you walk by their desk and you see a picture of three kids and you then have the opportunity to talk to that person in a way that maybe, I mean, you could just basically bring that up. You have three kids. I actually have, I, I've, got, I've got two kids. That's, that's, a, that's I've got, I've got a boy and a girl. And then all of a sudden, something has happened. You have captured a connection piece that wasn't there before. Jesus calls us into this. And thirdly, to engage them in selfless, practical ways that would be perceived by them positively. And if you're like, I can't do that. I can't do that. You, you can. If you're a Christian, you can. Paul says this, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of of others. And then he closes that off by saying, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to be complete. I want you to have the perfect mindset of the Father. Paul says, I want you to be complete. I want you to have the mindset of Jesus. And what that does is it finds the people that are hard to love and looks at them with wonder. Wonder because they're created in the image of God and says, this person is the the best, this, this person is so amazing and so valuable to God. They frustrate the snot out of me, but this person, to God, he loves them so much. They're the best, the best thing since, since what? Sliced bread, that's right, which brings us to wonder. Now, here's what you need to know about wonder bread. There would not be sliced bread without wonder bread. They didn't invent the process, but the process was invented in the 1910s, but they made it 
something that was marketable to the whole world. Because the, the people at Wonder Bread saw something remarkable in the fact that you could take this loaf and slice it up. It actually was something that was so big that people started buying up Wonder Bread like, like, like gangbusters um, in, in the 1930s. Once Wonder Bread uh, opened up and, and advertised this sliced bread, all of a sudden everybody was all about it, right? And so p- people were like using it and everything. And then so much so that when the war happened in, um, in 1943 in January, they put a ban on sliced bread because too many people were eating bread to which a ton of moms like revolted like all those pictures of violence that I showed you before, nothing. It's to the point that Janu- by, that was in January. By March, the ban was lifted and they said, okay, fine, eat your sliced bread. Here's the thing. Do you ever, have you ever wondered what the dots are on Wonder Bread packaging? Thank you. <laughs> it's because of this guy named Elmer Klein. See, Wonder was from out of Indianapolis. And he would go to the, uh, when the Indianapolis uh, Motor Speedway was being constructed, they had this idea to have um, hot air balloon races. And he said that when he looked at all these colored balloons, these red and, and blue balloons, yellow balloons flying through the skies, he was filled with wonder. And he said, that's what we want everyone to feel when they look at sliced bread. People are going to use this as a benchmark of greatness. This is the best thing since what we're making right now. Now, here's the cool thing. Here's the amazing thing. When Christians, when Christians actually step into the calling God has put upon their lives, they're doing something that everyone in our culture is hungry for but can't find. Everyone in our culture is valuing coexistence and tolerance, but they realize it doesn't last because it's not tethered to the image of God and the calling of Jesus, who was the image of God. See, the cool thing is this. If you're a Christian, you're somebody, as you're created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, you're able to live out the truth that the world is hungry for. The ability to look at every human being with the wonder of seeing the greatest creation in history. And more than tolerance, your coexistence can be rich and robust because it's grounded on the people who you disagree with most value, that God gave them that value, and that you're going to value them as well. That you're, you're going to step into that And you could actually do that being the most self-aware and honest. This person, this person is a bag of issues, but they're created in the image of God. And I'm called to do more than tolerate them. I'm called to love them. What would happen if the world had a chance to see that? that That would not only be the best thing since sliced bread, that would be the best thing in human history, and it would spread and the world would have a chance to see the difference that Jesus makes in Christians' lives. That is what he's called each and every one of us into. You've got it. Now live it. This is the thing that if you're a Christian, you're called into this. And if you're an atheist, you want every Christian to be living out. You want your world to be filled with more Christians because of this. Because of what Jesus did on the cross and his death and resurrection actually impacted, unlocking for us that reality. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, um, we're going to take our offering here in just a moment. But I want to encourage you, if you have your program, on the back side, or on the inside flap of your program, there's a section that says, I would like prayer for. If you have someone in your world that you have a very difficult time tolerating, and you know that there's a limit to your tolerance, and you would like us to pray for you, I want to encourage you just to put your name up at the top. You don't have to put any other information, just your name and that person's name in that, that section. And this week, 
as a staff, we will be praying for you and your opportunities to step into their world and love them with the love of Jesus. Let's pray for our offering and pray for that reality as well. Lord Jesus, we lift up to you these people. We're created in your image, God, but we understand how easy it is to want to throttle other image bearers of you, people that we disagree with, people who've caused us great harm, people who have, um, have wounded us or people we love. Lord, as much as violence is a key part of our history, it's something that, that we can't shake, Lord, we also know that you um, endured the most violent act of the cross, that you took on violence, that you took on sin, and you took on suffering, you took on selfishness. You took the place of Barabbas, a murdering robber. Your cross was between two other thieves that were part of his gang. Lord, you've taken the place of our sin as well and you've unlocked in us an ability to live for you. So Lord, I ask that you help us do that with this person that we have on our heart. God, I also ask that um, you, with the offering we take right now, you help us as a church proclaim the beauty of your gospel to this community and every other community around, that this isn't just a Manuka thing or a Morris thing or a Braidwood-Wilmington thing, that this is a global movement that you're in. And we will give you the thanks for the work that you do through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.